Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Sir Lawrence Friedman is Britain's foremost historian of that baleful human enterprise, war. In his distinguished academic career, Professor Friedman has advised governments and sat on commissions of inquiry into their blunders when it comes to war. Now, retired from teaching, Friedman has been following the war in Ukraine and writing about it at his substack, Comment is Freed. I spoke with him just after the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and just before the 20th anniversary of the American-led invasion of Iraq. Friedman became an unlikely media star for his forensic grilling of British officials during the Iraq inquiry in 2009 into how Britain went to war side by side with the U.S. in Iraq. We spoke about both conflicts, but I began by asking him what he thought the state of play in Ukraine was as spring slowly changes the operational situation on the battlefield. Um, It's not quite yet spring. Uh, Conditions are still pretty muddy. Um, The Russian spring offensive, however, has already started. It started in January, and it's basically a continuation of what they were doing before. And it's a puzzle. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is Russian tactics continue to be surprising because they're throwing people at at rubble, defended rubble, um, taking lots of casualties, imposing casualties too, of course, um, but not really advancing very far in the process. So Bakhmut, the latest, they've been at it since well, well over six months now. Um, and still haven't taken it, and the Ukrainians, having apparently been on the verge of withdrawing, now seem to be not withdrawing, feeling that they can have an important military effect by staying there and sort of daring the Russians to keep on coming at them. And of course, uh, for the Russians, not taking Bakhmut would be a bit embarrassing since they've held its imminent capture for a while. Um, the issue is assuming that the Ukrainians can absorb whatever it is the Russians can throw at them for the moment, is at what point they will be able to mount their own offensive, what, uh, and also how well the Russians will be able to counter that. So and this all comes down to uh, both equipment and manpower. Um, the Ukrainians have taken a lot of casualties, undoubtedly. Um, The view seems to be that they have kept substantial reserves in place for their own offensive, and of course are starting to receive more of the advanced Western equipment that was agreed um, at the Ramstein meeting a few weeks ago, including uh, infantry fighting vehicles, um, more artillery, more air defences, and of course tanks. So if that's the case, and and, and it does seem to be that they're trying to form um, new new formations capable of mounting an offence, the issue becomes how much the Russians have got themselves got in reserve, the quality of their own defences, and uh, of course if they're able to make any breakthroughs themselves in addition to what they've been trying to do at Bakhmut so far, they haven't made any breakthroughs anywhere else. And indeed, in in, in Buldar, uh, they've taken apparently extraordinary casualties um, because this is 
a town that's surrounded by open fields. And uh, the, the, again, according to the Ukrainians, but also I think Western intelligence, the Russians have lost a lot of armor there. Uh, so I, I think at the moment, the war could become quite fluid quite quickly. The war could become quite fluid. And you're not you're not quite sure which which side of the continental divide it's going to flow towards. From what we've seen so far over the last few weeks, I think the Ukrainians should be able to to come out more on top. I mean, one hesitates to talk about victory and defeat in these situations because you're talking about the amount of territory gained and the political impact of, of, of gains and losses of territory ra rather than, you know, a, a formal surrender of enemy forces sort of thing. You know, so so it, one has to be quite careful how one talks about it. But I think what the Russians have done so far uh, in this, as a sort of fighting season picks up is not that impressive. It seems that the strategic thinking at the top levels of the Kremlin, and I'm, I'm just assuming that that means Vladimir Putin more than anyone else, is one of nostalgia. It, this is strategy from nostalgia, that this is how the war was fought after Stalingrad was over, when the Red Army, particularly uh, its tank forces, rumbled across Ukraine, driving the Wehrmacht backwards towards Germany, and that somehow, even as they bogged down around Bakhmut for six months, taking extreme casualties, causing extreme casualties, but taking more than they are meeting out, that this has to be a strategy from nostalgia. It makes no sense in the 21st century. I think that's true. I think Putin's problem, the, the Russian military problem, is they have their chance for the fast-moving offensives when they began the war, when they have the advantage of surprise, and they blew it, uh, basically. Um, they used a lot of their best forces, a lot of their elite units, they used uh, a lot of their best kit and uh, the, the attrition that they suffered then and lots of young commanders and junior officers and so on. All of this left them in a, in a much worse position thereafter. So basically since the end of March, all they've really been able to do is rely on the, essentially a combination of artillery and infantry backed a bit by some armor, but, but nothing like what you would need for a sort of fast moving offensive. So they've relied on just battering down the Ukrainians. Now, it, it is <laughs> the least old fashioned. And uh, of course, means that what they take at the end of it is ruined and depopulated cities. And, and you know, though. You know the, the the destruction on the, the Donbass front line has been enormous. Um, you know, there's large chunks of Ukraine that, that have been spared this. So the, some cities have been reduced to nothing, and and this may continue. Uh, and of course, the Russians have been lobbing weapons into other Ukrainian cities, but it hasn't actually gained them very much for all the vast expenditure of people and shells and uh, and armor and so on over the last year there's not a lot to show for it 
I say nostalgia for World War II, but it's also, I mean, I, my guess is he thinks it worked in Chechnya, and it stopped the overthrow of Bashar Assad and allowed us to maintain a Mediterranean presence in Latakia. So maybe he thinks he can do the same thing by bludgeoning. Well, I think bludgeoning's done fine for him um, against smaller enemies. So Chechnya, certainly, the, I mean, the initial battle for Grozny was as catastrophic as the, as the battle for Kiev, in some ways, for the Russian military. But eventually, they battered, and also were able to divide and rule. It's important to remember with Chechnya, it wasn't just bludgeoning, um, that, that they they divided the Chechens, uh, and you know, which is why Kadyrov is, is now such an important player in, in, in on the Russian side. Uh, with Syria, they only provided the air power. Uh, and some command for, but 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 the um, the ground forces were provided by the Syrians and the um, and Iranians and some Hezbollah, but but the uh, there wasn't any air defences, so it, it wasn't difficult. But I think to some extent Putin got seduced by the ease with which he could use military power in these situations and come out on top. Ukraine, you could argue, it happened in Ukraine in 2014 as well. And so we're, we're sort of cocky about what what could be done this time around without just pausing to think, it seems, about the, the size of Ukraine, the, the size of the population, um, and their preparedness. So it's, it's just a totally different situation to those other ones, but I think he probably drew inappropriate lessons. So from the Ukrainian side, so much of the the winter period while fighting was not as possible as it was from March through to October last year. Do you think that they have adequately restocked themselves in terms of armaments? And what is your what what's the assessment you're getting on manpower since they have taken casualties? Yeah, I think what happened uh, in September, was that the Ukrainians had extraordinary breakthroughs, particularly in Kharkiv, partly because the the Russians had allowed them their, their spare reserves to be diverted to Kherson, where they assumed the main Ukrainian offensive was coming. And I think the Ukrainians wanted Kherson as well. I mean, they eventually got uh, the city back. Um, but um, once, when Kharkiv was taken, I think three things came into play. First, the Ukrainians were tired. I mean, the, 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 it was that the, they pushed very hard over a few weeks and, and got a long way, but, but it's always hard to sustain these offensives. Secondly, the Russians mobilized. And while that was a shambles to start with, they did sort out the systems. They did push people to the front and they may not have been very well trained or kitted out, but they made a further Ukrainian offensive harder than the weather deteriorated. So, so so I think there was a bit of disappointment that the Ukrainians couldn't exploit the breakthroughs that made. They just didn't have enough combat power to do that. And that's going to be a continuing worry, which is why I think they are keen to see more attrition of Russian forces there, there is a view that 
that they don't have enough in reserve. I don't get that from the Ukrainians. Uh, and it would be pointless, I think, for them to completely sacrifice the opportunities for a later offensive just to defend Bakhmut. One has to assume that they think the cost ratios favour them, however painful it is for their soldiers there. And of course, the key thing is the, is the new kit that's coming in. So, uh, and they do, you know, they do have shortages of ammunition at the moment, and that's very relevant in in Bakhmut. But it may not be. I mean, a lot of their problems is getting ammunition for old Soviet-era systems. If you're getting the new systems, then they also have problems with, with sort of scarcity, but they're, they're not as bad at the moment. Uh, and there's quite a lot of different types of systems around. So you have to assume that they've got quite a bit of mobile capability that if they can make a breakthrough would allow them to exploit it. That's the issue. I mean, so far in this war, the defense has been stronger than the offense. Unless the defense is very thin, offenses found it very hard. So when the defense was thin, say South Ukraine in last February or um, Kherson in September, sorry, Kharkiv in September, then you can have uh, effective movement. If the defense is, is well organized, so far it hasn't been easy. So that's the challenge. If they can get through Russian defenses and then can they exploit it? And we don't know yet. I mean, it, 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 they're increasingly confident, I think, but it's not been tested, and they're not going to. No, they're, they're not going to exude pessimism. So it, it, it's not always easy to tell. Well, everything is what it is, and not another thing. But I'm going to ask you to compare this particular war to others not necessarily in the 21st century, but what's at stake, you know, the scale of the combatants, which seems out of all proportion to me. I mean, is there has there ever been anything quite like this one? Well, I think, you know, you go back to the Second World War and Korea, um, really, because although there have been wars between modern armies uh, in the Middle East um, and uh, Indo-Pakistan and so on, Nothing on this scale, and nothing uh, in an in um, you know heavily populated areas. You know, this is this isn't desert warfare, working through urbanized uh, areas. So I think you know having studied many wars, and this is the most like the world wars, not obviously on its complete scale, than anything we've seen I mean, in terms of casualties obviously other wars have been far more costly you know the wars in africa vietnam and so on it's not the most costly war but the the fight that that's, that's going on between modern armies is is um this hard slog uh is something quite unique and it's been going on for obviously for a while i wonder if if the end game will be the creation of something like a DMZ in Donetsk and Luhansk, which are ruined, just ruined. So some international police force backed up you know, by the United States, inevitably. And this is like a no person's area. I think, um, I think I find it almost impossible to see how there can be a negotiated peace certainly in the short term, you're not going to end that 
of this war by that means. I mean, at some point, the parties may get together and discuss reparations and war crimes. The Russians clearly will want um, the end of sanctions. Um, how do you have a long-term demarcation of borders and so on? I mean, th th this is not going to be straightforward. So at best, you're looking for a ceasefire disengagement. The Ukrainians are very wary of a ceasefire that will freeze Russian gains. So I think the Russians have got to lose ground and probably be prepared to give up more before you stop the war on that basis. And then, yes, you could, you, you could easily have a demilitarized zone, peacekeeping forces, uh, something like we had in the... Um, after the 1973 war with, with Egypt and Syria. So there's, there's, there's a, a diplomatic history of, of those sorts of arrangements. Again, I don't, you know, we're some way from that at the moment. I think to me, the key question is, is can the Ukrainians push the Russians back hard, possibly approaching Crimea? I think only when it becomes apparent that Russia is taking all these casualties and expending all this wealth for nothing, that it's futile, will you start to get, um, uh, or, you know, it is ruining its military, um, will you start to get some sort of pushback and possible interest? You know, we're, we're some way away from all of this. It's uh, Putin, I think, is scared stiff of a, of a negotiation of any sort which forces him to admit that he hasn't achieved what he said he was going to achieve. I wonder if your view on that has changed much in the last 10 months. So my view from day one was that the Russians couldn't win this. And fortunately, writing a substack means that I've got a record of saying that. So I never thought the Russians could win, and I still don't see how the Russians could win. That doesn't mean to say that the Ukrainians can win in a way that matters to them, which is getting all their territory back, or the Russians therefore will lose in the sense of being defeated in battle. In that sense, there's a lot to play for. I thought it was possible you'd get a, a ceasefire peace negotiation working in March because they were talking I mean, and then at times expressed some optimism that they could get a deal. I think the Ukrainians were a bit naive then in terms of what the, because I think they thought they bloodied the Russians sufficiently to get the Russians to withdraw. And I, I think they just misread what the Russians would, would give them. I think you, you know, the Russians misread the Ukrainians in their own way as well, but it was possible to, to imagine that. But I think the, if anything, the war's got much harder to stop since then, not because of necessarily what's happening in battle, that's part of it, but just Putin has escalated his objective. He started off with regime change. Then he went back to the Donbass, let, let's control Donetsk and Luhansk. He hasn't done that yet. Then in September, when he panicked, I think, he brought in this annexation. So in addition to Donetsk and Luhansk, he's going to make sure soon as Afritsia, parts of Russia along with Crimea. Well, they're not, you know, he doesn't control them at the moment. And um, they're, not in, they're not going to be internationally recognised. The Ukrainians won't stop. So 
you know, he boxed himself in. And I think that, so in September, I in September, I think I could see if the Ukrainians were able to keep on pushing, that we might get to this point where the military said we can't do much more. But the combination of mobilization and raising the stakes, I think, meant that uh, it was going to be much harder to stop the war. A reminder, my podcast is entirely funded by listeners. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com or my SoundCloud page, and make a donation to keep the podcast going. And now, back to my conversation with Sir Lawrence Friedman. Now, I just want to change the subject and pose a similar question to you, if you can remember. What did you think in February and March of 2003? I was actually in the region because I was in Iraq as an unembedded reporter in Kurdistan. But I wonder how you thought about the war as it, it, it inevitably approached. Yeah, I remember feeling deeply miserable. I mean, with, with Ukraine, I think it's terribly difficult to, uh, and uh, strategically challenging. and It's not as easy as it might be assumed to work out what's going on. But I, have, I can approach it with a degree of moral clarity. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I, I know who I want to win. And I guess I knew who I wanted to win 20 years ago because although I was getting more and more dubious about the weapons of mass destruction stuff by the time the war started, you know, I had not much doubt that Saddam was a bad thing for his people in the neighbourhood. But all that being said, I wasn't convinced that the rationale for war was that strong and i was and i wasn't i wasn't worried about the ability of the coalition to defeat iraq i just thought that would happen but i was worried about the aftermath i did think that the america that the with the inspectors in iraq the obvious thing to do was to let them get on with it and when they'd reported, you could form a judgment. Due to me, Blair's success in 2002 had been to create that option. And, it, you know, it was down a lot, Tim, but, but Bush wasn't interested. He wanted to get on with it, and Blair went along with it. And I think that was tragic. It's not, I've no idea what would have happened with Iraq afterwards. It's hard to imagine it could have carried on as was. And it may be that it would have eventually blown up like Syria. I don't know. It's a counterfactual. You can't work it out. But I do know that I wanted this thing over. I didn't want this thing to happen. And without particularly being in the, I wouldn't claim, you know, being in the anti-war camp, I sort of understood why it might happen. But I just thought there were opportunities to say, say face isn't the right word. There were, there were opportunities to pursue the stated policies without having to go to war. And I was worried about the aftermath, correctly, as it turned out. So, you know, uh, uh, and then when it when the war came, you know, after, after sort of wobbles for a little bit, it wasn't surprising that uh, the, the Iraqis crumbled quite quickly. And, you, you know, you wonder if there'd been better preparation, whether they could have made something more of Iraq. Uh, rather than let it descend into this sort of intercommunal violence, which hasn't 
I mean, it, it, things are better now, but only to a degree. Well, in, in that country where people have large families and they start young, 20 years is a generation, so that, you know, a child born the day Saddam's statue came at, down in Tahrir Square, or Purdue Square, is 20 years old now and quite possibly a parent of a young child themselves, you know, so things things necessarily from the passage of time and generations change. Yeah, it, um, it's interesting, my, my read, and I... I it became for me the a turning point in my life is that there is a similarity in that with the with when i was talking earlier about putin and nostalgia i think that what happened with bush they pl- made no preparation they seemed to think they believed their their own propaganda that democracy presented to people would be sufficient and one didn't have to plan or think about what decades of living inside a totalitarian torture state, which is what Iraq was, you know, in the same way that 70 years of totalitarian Soviet rule had made Russians not quite capable of handling the civic demands of, of democratic freedom. The problem that it just struck me, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at Iraq with, with the inquiry, it's not that people don't want democracy or don't even, you know, or don't understand how to do it, but you need the institutions, strong political institutions, and they didn't have that. But also the electoral system that was devised uh, had the effect of uh, reinforcing sectarian divisions. Uh, and I think that that was part of the of the tragedy it just hadn't been thought through no aspect of it had been thought through um and i think partly that was because neither the american nor the british military actually wanted to hang around uh they wanted to get out and they thought that and they didn't want to appear as armies of occupation without realizing that you know you can't move into a country and talk to the government and be the only working force in town uh, without actually occupying the country. And they were legally occupying powers. Uh, and that brought with it obligations. So, you know, a, a perfectly reasonable desire not uh, to impose themselves, not to be an army of occupation, meant that when, despite all of that, they had to become an, an army of occupation, they just hadn't thought it through, didn't have the personnel in place, were making just making it up on the fly, making it up as they went along. Yeah, there was a sad moment. A, a, a nice man, a former uh, general, retired, named Jay Garner, who came into town um, initially. The, the, and I remember him traveling down, I think, to Basra and meeting with tribal leaders down there, and they were asking him questions to which he had no answer because he had no authority to answer. And he said, this is a paraphrase, but very close, hey, guys, it's your country. I, and, I, and I emphasize guys because that is a direct quote. Hey, guys, it's your country. You can do, you know, and you think, I'm not sure about that. And Garner had made some progress, did make some progress, and, you know, was in discussion with tribal leaders and so on. But then he was displaced by by Bremner, who, you know, you had depathification, demilitarization, 
in quick order without any again anybody thinking through the 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 consequences so quite a lot of people who were there in um you know late april or early may 2003 Three, yeah uh, wonder you know whether with a bit more time actually they could have worked something out but the, but we'll never know because those those moves were just, were just catastrophic I'll just share this one anecdote uh, when the regime collapsed in Mosul. There was never a battle in Mosul. And on the day it collapsed, um, I'm sure there were American special forces on scene, but they were in the shadows. And I went to, um, you know, I was went around Mosul, and people would come up and hug you and weep with joy. Men, obviously. And that was in the morning. And by the evening, when the looting had really got out of hand, they would come up and scream at you because that's how quick things turned around. You can't take away a to that kind of police state and not immediately put a security force in place. They didn't have the numbers and they didn't, and the troops didn't have the rules of engagement. So, you know, no, yeah. everything about it was, it, it was, just, it was like a scientific experiment designed to test any optimist, you know, uh, every possible barrier that you could imagine to an orderly transition of power was put in there. Well, just just to bring it back to Ukraine, Putin pretty clearly, I, I get your view is that he's facing a similar level of, not if not defeat, failure. I think failure is the word. I mean, Americans would never say they were defeated. They overthrew Saddam. But the mission was a failure. And I reckon that Putin, in your view, is going to face the same level of failure. Yeah, I mean, I guess as with Saddam, you wonder, um, you know, who tells him what, what he understands. Uh, I mean, he must know it's not going desperately well uh, because there hasn't been an awful lot to crow about. And, he, you know, he, he he's talks to his people now as if this is a continuation of the great patriotic war requiring exactly the same level of sort of endurance and sacrifice and uh, and so on but you know the the russians in the early 40s the the, the russians had not only a much larger population and also industrial capacity they also had land lease i mean they were being supported by the british and the americans so and also, you know, this whole great patriotic war thing leads to a total mischaracterization of of the Ukrainians. If you, the first thing you need to do uh, if you're going to fight a country like Ukraine is at least make an effort to understand the things. No, when you talk about them as being Nazis and so on, it just it just gives no understanding of, of their nature. Uh, I you know we struggle. We know we struggle with trying to understand Russia. Or trying to understand Putin because it's you know trying to understand one person and the you know the degree of his hold over this country. So it's um, it's a puzzle. <laughs> the, 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 what Putin knows and understands uh, and, and what options he thinks he's got. But uh, history will judge this a failure, certainly. It's clearly a failure. I mean, in terms of what he said and what he clearly believed in on twenty fourth of February last year that this was you know. A special military operation uh, wouldn't inconvenience anybody too much, and um, was to demilitarize and denazify 
whatever that means, Ukraine. Well, clearly he wasn't expecting to be fighting over a year later with uh, Kiev free and now with the lights back on in Kiev. You know, it, it, it's, um, it is a failure. And it's been a failure from day one. But you know, in, in a non-authoritarian political system, you've got ways of recognising that and dealing with it. You know, we, we've had our failures, but, you know, you, you adapt and uh, at least try to acknowledge them. But you can't even do that. So it's, it's a make-believe world he's created. Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, thank you very, very much for your time. You've been very generous. Okay, it was good to talk to you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Professor Friedman for his time. His substack again is called Comment is Freed, and it's a good place to find a no-nonsense overview of the war in Ukraine. And remember to visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com. There's lots more to listen to, and you can make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.